Well, it's certainly good to be back with you again this evening. Um, I am a man who struggles with change, and so it's always encouraging to come back and see that there are many of you who are still holding to your assigned seating charts. I mean, if I walked in here and some of you were over here that are usually over here, I think the rapture had come and I'm in trouble. But, uh, no, we uh, begin by just expressing some gratitude to, to you and, and for you. Um, the many cards, the many thanks, the many notes, the plants, the flowers uh, that, that, that were sent to Kim and, and the family with the loss of her father. Um, as Bart said, we've been around here for a decade, and you continue to love us and to minister to us, and we are grateful for that. Also, we know many of you have been praying, praying for Manhattan Bible Church. Um, we are close. We are close to uh, signing a contract on a building, and so we're excited about that. That possibly could happen as soon as this week, and uh, we'll be sure and alert Bart when that happens so he can kind of inform you on more of that. But uh, again, you continue to pray for us, you continue to uh, love us, and um, it is such a privilege uh, to be back here with you again tonight. I do need to begin by maybe setting the record straight. There's a rumor that this morning from this very pulpit that maybe there was an implication that because I was once a football coach, I struggled with irritability and frustration and anger. That is not true. I have never struggled with that at all. And I hope there aren't any of my former players in here because they're calling me a liar. Much like Bart's subject this morning, it's, it's interesting that uh, this almost seemed hand-picked for me um, in some ways. Um, so you're all fortunate to be here tonight to listen to an expert on this topic. <laughs> but, so turn with me to Ephesians 4. That's where we'll be spending most of our uh, time this evening together as we look at this uh, emotion and the sufficiency of God's Word in addressing it in our hearts and lives. Let me begin with a, a word of prayer. Father, it is, it is good to, to be here tonight, to worship together through song, to worship together through ministry across the world, to worship together in your word. And so Lord, we pray that you would give us exactly what we need tonight. Enlighten us, encourage us, convict us. Lord, change us. Conform us into your image, into your likeness more and more. So that the, when the world observes our lives, when they hear our words, when they see us live in light of trials and suffering and persecution that they might see you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
And life is filled with many opportunities to witness and deal with the emotions of irritability and frustration and anger. And just for the sake of our time tonight, so that I don't have to say all three of these emotions when I'm referring to this topic, I'm going to lump them all into one and we'll refer to it as anger. They all three have the same seed and source as we'll see in just a few minutes. Now, some of us may know of someone who never seems to ever really get angry. And in all honesty, I'm not one of them. Truth be told, even those who may not show anger on the outside and may not have an issue of letting the lion out of the cage, we all have to deal with this at some level and at some point in our lives. One author claims this about anger. He says, the one who claims and seems to never get angry fails to recognize that it oftentimes shows up in disguise. Anger has many masks and is found in things such as murder, violence, hatred, yelling, arguing, cursing, conflict, blame, revenge, jealousy, slander, gossip, taking joy in the troubles of others, sarcasm, that one hurt, grumbling and complaining, withdrawal and silence. He then goes on to say, so if you think anger is not an issue, you may want to reconsider and just go ahead and assume it is. This is reinforced by all of the websites and articles and programs that one can find on the internet addressing this issue. It seems to be as common among mankind as flies on stink, and it's as adorning as, adorning as well. You can find any information you want on the topic. But as we approach this tonight and has been preached and taught and modeled and experienced in this church for years. It is the word of God that should have first, the first and final word on the subject. If we will believe what is taught here regarding the sufficiency of Scripture, then the Bible will be our sole authority on the matter. It wasn't long ago I had a very discouraging conversation with a young lady, a professing believer, and I asked her, I asked her, do you believe in the sufficiency of the word? And in a very snarky tone, she responded by telling me, you know I do. She knew a lot of scripture. She had grown up in the church. But as she continued to answer my question, as we continued to have a conversation, she made this statement. But sometimes the Bible needs help. To which, of course, I kindly and gently explained to her that because she was able to make that statement that she really didn't believe that the Bible was sufficient. See, we can use words, we can nod our heads in agreement to the sufficiency of Scripture, but when it comes down to life, when it comes down to applying it, when it comes down to fully trusting God's Word to define the problem and make a diagnosis of the problem, and prescribe the cure to the problem, that's when we find out if we really truly believe the sufficiency of the word. So it is with this series that you all are going through. It's designed to help us all with God's word and its sufficiency. It's sufficiency to address emotions, all of them. But if it is to rightly address the emotion, then it has to be acknowledged that it has the authority over secular ideologies, 
secular philosophies and psychology and everything else to define the emotion then to shed light on its source, prescribe the cure, promise the results, and then provide ways in which we as believers might grow in dealing with it. So, in keeping with the outline that was given to me, tonight we will define anger biblically. Oftentimes, the definition of anger differs drastically than how the world would and does define this emotion. And so this is where we have to start is in God's word. If scripture isn't allowed in our minds to live or in lives to define the terms, then it won't be allowed to have the final say in the cure. Then we will examine the struggle through the lens of scripture. Flowing out of biblical definitions of anger, we will then look at the source of the issue. You can't and won't truly deal with the emotion biblically if you don't know what's causing it. You can't. The Bible is sufficient to reveal to us its source so that it might rightly be dealt with. Then we will evaluate the proposed remedies critically. Knowing the Bible, the biblical definition of anger and its seed, we can then critically compare the world's remedy to solve the issue versus God's remedy, remedy and evaluate which one addresses the issue the best. And then we will work these remedies out to their ends. What is going to not just cover up with a band-aid or patch, but which ones will fully cure the disease? And finally, we'll work through some very practical ways in which we can grow in addressing the anger or frustration or irritability in our own hearts. So let's get started quickly by defining what these three emotions or anger are so we can have a starting point. See, not too long ago, the world's definition of anger would have been fairly close to that of God's definition to it. Many in the secular world of counseling and psychology do label it as one of man's basic emotions, similar to happiness or sadness. And particularly, they say that it is emotion that is a response to a wrong of some sort, and it flows out of other feelings such as disappointments, fear, and stress. Now, if they would have just stopped there, then we might have been able to have some sort of reasonable conversation and found some sort of common ground. Because anger is an emotion, as we know, and it's most certainly, in most cases, a response to injustice or wrongdoing. And it can flow and does flow out of stress and disappointment and fear. But this is no longer where the world is stopping when they define and describe anger. See, now that the issues of anxiety and stress and depression are being labeled and defined as illnesses or disorders, and these things then lead to anger, so therefore anger is now being labeled as such in some cases as well. One secular author wrote this. He said, anger can damage physical health in the long term. Prolonged release of the stress hormones that accompany anger can destroy neurons in the areas of the brain associated with judgment and short-term memory and weaken the immune system. Now, you know, I'm in no place in my education to debate or challenge these claims. I, I did, however, have a buddy one time. We were in the gym playing basketball, 
and he lost the game, and he was so mad, he went and found a ball that had just rolled up against the wall, and he kicked it as hard as he could, and he broke his foot. So in that case, anger did actually have a physical effect on the person. But with all that said, there does seem to be a movement in our culture that wants to make excuses for this emotion. And any attempt to contain it or subdue it is only for the good of the one who is angry. This now has become something much different than what we see in Scripture. The Bible does help us understand anger as a response to wrong. It is a response to sin and evil. But you will never hear these words in the world's definition of anger. Before we move on too quickly, we do need to sift through anger as we see it in Scripture. Anger in and of itself is not sinful. Any quick search of the word anger or angry in the Bible concordance will give you not several but many references and passages that are describing the anger of God. We know that there is a righteous anger. Again, simply flip through the pages of Isaiah and Jeremiah, and it would be, you'd be hard-pressed to find on one page the absence of God's anger or wrath. Proverbs 6, 16 and 19 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Again, Solomon doesn't use the word angry or anger here, but you can't read this and miss the fact that these six things do make God mad. Jesus went into the temple twice and drove out the thieving leaders who were using the temple and the sacrificial system for their worldly gain. Jesus cursed a fig tree. He was angered time and time again at the religious leaders and how they were leading people straight to hell by what they were teaching and commanding. We know of God's anger and his judgments. We know about Achan and Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity. Nebuchadnezzar would eat, he ate grass like a cow. Egypt. And one day, the final day of the Lord, when all those who reject him and his son and his word will be judged and suffer in hell for all eternity. So no, anger is not intrinsically sinful. And if you're in Ephesians chapter 4, and you look down at verse 26, we see too that we should be angered. We too should be angered by the things that God is angered by. We are commanded to be angry in Ephesians 4.26. See, we should be angry at the false teachers and all those who are leading impressionable, weak people to damnation. We too should be angered at the murder of the unborn, the, the parading of depravity and the deep immorality that's being pushed on us today. The lies and denial of gender being assigned by the creator at conception. The all-out attack on the family and male headship. Those things could, should make us angry. But God is always good in his anger. God's anger is never out of control. It is never sinful. It is always right and it is always just. 
But sadly, you and I know all too well that this is often not the case with us. And so Paul goes right into the second command of this exhortation in Ephesians 4.26. He says, do not sin in that anger. See, too often our anger is not at the right things or at the right time. We get angry at sin, but because it's against us, not because it's against God. We want justice for us, and we want to be the ones to deal out the punishment. We are the ones who seek retribution for the crime when we know very good and well that that's reserved for God. See, our anger becomes sinful when it becomes personal. Oftentimes, our anger comes from us not getting what we want or think we deserve. So, as James says, we argue and bicker and fight. See, in our sinful anger, most times it does not seek God. It's more about being right and being the judge ourselves as opposed to defending God and his reputation. See, our anger oftentimes forgets the mercy that we have been shown. So even though there is an anger that is righteous, righteous anger never comes from irritability or frustration. It never flows out of selfishness. And that is why anger is most often, if not always, a sinful reaction to a wrong or injustice towards ourselves and not God. And so that is the anger that we will be addressing tonight. This then helps us see the source of our anger, which is really the true reason why oftentimes our anger is sinful. When we examine our anger in light of the truth of the Bible, we see that it is sin that has its seed in our hearts. It has its seed in our pride. It's selfish. And anger is not a disorder. It's not someone else's fault or responsibility. It ultimately isn't even a result of stress or fear as the world would like us to know and view it. There isn't a healthy or satisfactory expression of it. If it is sin, then it must be done away with and not suppressed or expressed. The Bible in Ecclesiastes 7 tells us that anger lodges in the heart of a fool. Anger finds its home. Anger is comfortable. Anger is fed and clothed and shelter in the heart of a fool. See, righteous anger is a result of injustice towards God and others. Sinful anger, our anger, is a result of the injustice that we perceive against ourselves. Another author makes this point. Human anger prefers to live as though we were the righteous judge. As though our own glory is at stake. As though judgment is in our own hands. Our anger is all too frequently proud and filled with selfish desire and a commitment to our perceived rights. He even then makes the argument that when our anger is directed against injustices against others, it's still oftentimes a vigilante response that is accountable, accountable to no one. See, the truth about our anger is that it is a result of pride found in our hearts that flows out of our selfish and sinful desires to be thought more highly of than we really are. We don't get what we want. Therefore, we want to be the judge and jury. We want retribution. 
And we want things to be made right ASAP. And our anger takes God off of his throne. It takes the gavel out of his hand. It denies the mercy and grace that we have been shown. It makes us look like a fool and it imitates Satan. See, if anger is the seed of murder and Satan has been a murderer and liar from the very beginning, our anger imitates Satan. So we must understand that anger or irritability or frustration are not emotions that need to be controlled or released safety or diffused after they arise or come to the surface. They are sins. Wicked sins of the heart that are selfish and flow out of our evil desires that want to make much of ourselves and not of God. And they need to be mortified before they bear fruit. So then from this point, we can now proceed to critically evaluating the remedy for sinful anger. Again, as you look into the world for remedies to this, you can find a plethora of options. Numerous 10 or 7 step programs to controlling your anger. The world is filled with advice for those who suffer from this new disorder. You can find anything from exercise to humor. That's kind of my favorite. From taking a time out to canceling those who make you mad. Now listen, you can cancel, you can deconstruct, you can defriend all the people you want, and that won't solve the issue of your anger. These programs or plans from eliminating the triggers, which is another fun word from the secular counseling world, to creating a, I like this one, a calming kit filled with hand lotion or a picture of a beautiful landscape or essential oils or our favorite candy. There are even breathing exercises, meditation, music, images that that can diffuse your anger. You name it and it probably will find its way on someone's list of remedies for anger. Again, I'm not here to say that some of those things might be somewhat helpful in keeping you from acting out and throwing a fit or an act of rage. But again, they are simply band-aids that keep the issue buried and festering and growing. None of them address the heart. None of them address the seed. None of them attack the root. None of them have any effect in mortifying the sin. So in this letter of Ephesians, in chapter 4, If you're not there, please turn there with me. In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul begins to lay out for us a a way of life, a a walk that he says is is worthy of our calling, a, a way of life for a follower of Christ, a justified, sanctified, being sanctified life. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then in verse 17, let your eyes bounce down to there. He begins to place the life of an unbeliever next to the life of a believer to prove and demonstrate and encourage living a life that honors the Lord. He sets them in contrast. A life that is worthy of the calling of the church has has been called to, and, and we're going to come back to these in just a few minutes. But then in verse 25, he shows us what the believer in his or her life will be doing. 
And he does this by a series of, of these put-ons and put-offs. Now, we don't necessarily see these words in these verses. But with each, each imperative, they are assumed and they are brought to the context from the previous one. So if your eyes are there, the first one is put off falsehood and put on telling the truth. Again, Paul acknowledges, or I'm sorry, notice in the second one in verse 25, and we've mentioned this, he says, be angry, and then put on righteous anger, and put off sinful anger. Again, Paul is acknowledging a right anger. But we're dealing with an anger that is sinful because it's selfish and motivated by our desires to self-glorify, to self-preserve, to self-promote, and self-justify. And through this whole section, we see that this is characteristic of the old self and not the new. This is the anger that we are to be putting off as believers. This is to be characteristic of a Christian. Not minimizing it, not diffusing it, not expressing it, not manipulating it with candy. We are to be putting it off. We are to be laying it aside, never to pick it up again. We are to be killing it. And then in chapter 4, verse 26, Paul makes two commands. The first we've already mentioned. He says, be angry. And the second is, do not sin, referring to sinful anger. But then he begins to help us in how we put off, how we put away this sinful anger. He says, do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, if, if nothing else for now, this phrase or comment should give us a, a pinch in the side, a nudge on the shoulder, or a good old slap in the, upside the head. It should alert us to the importance of dealing with our anger as soon as we can and as comprehensive as we can. Do not give the devil a foothold. And if we aren't constantly confessing and repenting of this sin at its core level, at its desire level, then we will be giving Satan a foothold. But then jump down to verse 31. And Paul begins to explain what begins to happen when anger isn't dealt with. See, anger sits on a slippery slope, and when it's not dealt with, it begins to slide into deeper and darker areas, and we see this in these verses. And Paul uses this in another put off and put on command. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And we know and have already seen that at the very root of murder is anger. But we're much too civilized and holy for that. We would never let our anger get to that place. But Paul here cuts to the chase. In this verse, Paul gives us six nouns that can be placed into four different categories that grow out of sinful anger. And I just want to point these out real briefly. Again, we're thinking through this foothold that we give Satan when our anger is not dealt with. The first is bitterness. It refers to a sinful attitude kept in the heart and mind. 
This word refers to resentment in the heart or a refusal to reconcile. It's a frame of mind. It is an intentional decision that is made. It sits in opposition to being sweet or kind. This is a person who keeps score, who keeps a record of wrong that Paul in 1 Corinthians tells us is not loving. And James warns us of this very thing in, in James 3, 14 and 15. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. And he says this, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Again, much like Paul is doing in Ephesians, James has written this letter to help us understand that saving faith produces fruit. And so he's setting up some contrasts to help us understand what saving faith looks like. And one of the contrasts with our anger, with this bitterness that he refers to, is wisdom. There's a heavenly wisdom that comes from God that saving faith produces in the life of someone who is truly regenerate that is not seen in the life of an unbeliever. That is why anger is foolish. And in this verse, James tells us that heavenly wisdom, a life flowing out of saving faith, will not be characterized by bitterness and selfishness. And the hard truth here is this. And look where this attitude comes from. Not only from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and it's demonic. Now wait a second, James. That's, that's pretty harsh. You don't know what I've gone through. You don't know what this person has done to me. You don't know what I have to put up with all day long. Paul says this heart... This refusal to reconcile, this bitterness, this determined, settled resentment that keeps record of wrongs so that it can be used against the offender is from the devil. And its cause is sinful anger. The second category that we see in this verse that flows out of anger is our sinful disposition towards others. Anger that grows into a bitter heart that goes unchecked and not repented of at the heart level and not mortified, leads to a sinful disposition towards the offender. Not just towards the offender, but it becomes our disposition. We see wrath, the first word, and anger, the second. Both of these words are very similar words. Really, the only difference between the two is, is wrath is a, a furious outburst. It, it might be a, a temper thrown. We see this in Galatians 5.20. Paul uses this word and it's translated as fits of anger. But the meaning behind the word anger is that it's not quick and short, but it's settled. It's a permanent attitude. The word is used to describe the wrath of God towards sinner and sin. It's a settled state of anger. But when it's used in reference to man... Most times it is not a positive thing. It is the same word that Paul uses back up in Ephesians 4.26 where we are told to be angry at certain things. Paul is going to distinguish between these two angers in, in just a few minutes. Now, one commentator defined it as an unjustifiable human condition. Colossians 3.8, it's defined as rage. 
And Paul tells Titus that any man who is characterized by this anger, by this wrath, is not qualified to lead in the church. And when this disposition settles in, we are less patient with others. We're irritable and easily frustrated. We're less gracious. We are quicker to point out the next mistake or sin. The record of wrong that is kept that makes us bitter becomes the declaration of wrong in a quick emotional outburst. The world tries to use many things to justify this disposition, but none of them None of them are Christ-like. Again, these things flow out of sinful anger that is not dealt with at the heart level. And they look nothing like the new man that we have been created in. The fourth and fifth words in this verse that Paul uses in our text are, are put into a sinful speech category. Clamor and slander is how the ESV translate it. They're referring to the way in which we talk and the actual words that are spoken. See, clamor is then this outward manifestation of anger. In Greek literature and scripture, this word at times is translated brawling. It's looking for a fight. It refers to violent arguments or yelling. We have several examples of this behavior in Acts. In Acts 22, Luke tells us of the clamor that resulted when Paul told the Jews who just about killed him in Jerusalem that he was sent to the Gentiles. Paul uses this word to help describe the false teacher who does not agree with what the Bible says. In this too, Paul tells Timothy is not to be characterized or characteristic of a leader in the church. So if clamor is how we talk to others, slander refers to the actual words we say. These are the hurtful or insulting words that come out of our mouths. If you need help with this, just read Proverbs. There's a lot to say regarding this. 619, the false witness who breathes out lies and sorrows, discord among a brother. 1018, slander is a fool. In John and Revelation 12.10, we read that the accusation that Satan throws at the elect is actually slander, a tool used by the father of lies. And this often comes easily for some of us, doesn't it? We get hurt, and so we go on the attack. We want retribution. We retaliate by how we respond and with the words we respond with. Oh, how dangerous this is to every relationship we are in. It in no way maintains any semblance of unity at all within the church, within the home, within a marriage. Attacking with words, especially untrue, hurtful words, never builds up. It opposes the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart and life of the one we are attacking. And again, when this happens, we can almost always trace it back to undealt with sinful anger in the heart. And the sixth and the final noun that Paul uses in verse 31 is the word translated malice. 
This word really encapsulates or defines the previous five nouns. It colors these words. And this now is what makes anger in verse 31 sinful and the anger in verse 26 not sinful. It's what separates God's anger from our anger. And it's the root of the previous five. See, malice is an all-encompassing word for badness or wickedness. It's the opposite of moral excellence or virtue. And this is why anger cannot be part of the believer's life and character. It's why it is part of the old man and not the new. And this is why it must be put away with or put away. It's why it must be put to death. It's why it must be mortified in our lives. So I hear some of you mumbling under your breath. Get to the point. How are we to deal with this anger? Well, this is where Paul goes next in verse 32. He says, put off this bitterness, this disposition, this language, this malice. He says, put on. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And in order for us to deal with our sinful anger, in order for us to put off sinful anger, Paul gives us these things that that we are to pursue then. If we want to overwhelm our irritable, frustrated, angry hearts, we need to do it by pursuing one, kindness. And we know that Paul lists this as one of the characteristics that the Spirit produces in each and every believer when he writes to the churches in Galatia. So it is an attribute of God. This is a gracious, gentle disposition of the mind towards others. One theologian defined it as the sympathetic kindliness or sweetness of temper which puts others at ease and shrinks from giving pain. It is goodness of heart that always seeks to do good. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.3 that the Lord is good or the Lord is kind. This is how Jesus describes himself in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, my yoke is easy, my yoke is kind, and my burden is light. Paul uses the noun form of this word in Romans 3 to describe the depravity of man when he says that no one does good. He's he's actually saying no one is kind. So for Paul to tell believers in Ephesus to be kind, he's telling them and us today to act according to the new man and not the old The old was depraved and couldn't act kindly towards others. The new can and does. Kindness now is to become who we are more and more. Secondly, we're to pursue tenderheartedness. Paul then moves into another word that can be translated compassionate. This word is, it's a rare word. It describes a deep-seated care and concern for others. It's the idea of being sympathetic or having pity on others. Matthew 9.30, we read of Jesus' compassion for the masses, for the mass of Jewish people, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Mark 1, we see Jesus' tender-heartedness towards a leper that he healed. Luke describes Jesus' compassion in the story of the widow of Nain. 
And James tells us of the Lord's compassion and mercy for those who suffer with steadfastness while they wait for him to return. See, those who are in Christ cannot look at the suffering of another and not be moved in some way. And we are to be pursuing this in our own hearts towards others to keep us from sinful anger. And thirdly, we need to pursue a forgiving heart, always willing and ready to forgive. Brothers and sisters, anger and forgiveness have no relationship. They're completely at odds. And Paul says to forgive as God has forgiven us in Christ. If sinful anger is demonic and forgiveness is found only in Christ and his atoning work on the cross, then the two have to be diametrically opposed. So we are to pursue kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness. And with these then lie the results of these remedies. As we read, as God in Christ has forgiven us. See, only the gospel can and does make us kind. Only the gospel can and does create a tenderheartedness in us. And only the gospel can and does provide, inform, and motivate forgiveness. These things then preserve not only the unity that we have with others, but it deepens the fellowship we have with Christ. And when these things are being lived out in our lives, as we are walking according to the calling to which we've been called by, then as Paul says in Ephesians 3.10, the manifold wisdom of God is put on display in the gospel. That's the beauty of this. No band-aids, no physical health, not mental health, but a heart that responds to the gospel and loves what God loves and hate what God hates, and hates the way God hates. So how do we grow in these things? Because even as believers, I know we can and do still deal with the me monster of anger. Let's back up to chapter 4, 17 to 24. And I want to read these together. Paul says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. One of my favorite words in the Bible is but. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What a wonderful passage of scripture that is. Really quick, for all you scientific-minded people out there, what is the best way to remove all the air from a beaker? Well, I know you're not an answering church, so I'll answer it. You fill it with water. If our hearts and our minds are filled with sin and wrong thoughts of God and ourselves, 
We have to overwhelm them with the truth and the love of Christ. Well, some might say, well, we're just broken vessels. How are we able to even hold this water? Well, the best way to fill a broken vessel is to immerse it. And this is what Paul is telling us to do in these verses. Again, he's contrasting the Gentiles or the unbelievers with a believer, and he begins to set this contrast up with the difference between what one thinks or believes, one's faith. See, the unbeliever has a mind that is futile, it's darkened, it's ignorant. Their hard hearts, their wrong beliefs, and their evil and sinful lives are all interconnected. But then he says this regarding the believer in verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. The believer has learned Christ, who he is, and what he's done, and how this now affects the life of a believer. And once the heart is changed through regeneration, the mind begins to be renewed with the truth of Scripture, and the sinful desires that were once part of the old self begin to be pushed out of our hearts by the desires that come from learning Christ. And we see, first of all, that Paul says, you have to learn Christ. If you have any chance of doing the put-offs and the put-ons that follow in these verses in, in verse 25, you must first learn Christ. We have to fill our minds and hearts with the truths of who Christ is and what he's done. Not just the facts about him, but the growing in relation with him. God is king and judge. He is the one who determines right from wrong. He is the one who ultimately is sinned against, and he will be the one who will make things right. It is God who is in control of the very things that make you angry. So in a sense, your anger is fighting against God and his providence. He is sovereign over the big things that tend to make us angry and even the small things as well. Greater knowledge of Christ and his word also brings a greater knowledge of ourselves. It is in this that we can rightly assess our hearts as to why something is making us angry or frustrated or irritable. We will often then be able to discern what we are desiring more than Christ. Secondly, we see in these passages we are to learn Christ. But this learning Christ is to produce a growing love for him. We learn Christ and we love Christ. Knowing Christ makes him more glorious and majestic and worthy in our estimations. And as we begin to think rightly of him, we behold him. We delight in him. We are more and more satisfied in him. We are consumed with worshiping him through obedience. And this is when the sinful desires of our hearts, the, the air in the beaker, begins to be pushed out as our hearts are filled with the knowledge of Christ and his love for us and then our desire for him we begin to be bound to these new desires. And then this makes us look like Christ. We begin to, as Paul says in verse 24, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
Paul Shirley in his book, Expository Sanctification, works this out for us a bit. But just briefly, he says we do this as we meditate on the truths of Christ and his word. We, we immerse ourselves. We immerse our broken vessels in Christ. We learn Christ. This then leads to the mortification or the putting off and the putting on. Again, I, I certainly believe that, that there are things we need to do so that when we do get angry, we don't worsen it. That there are things that when anger does come knocking at our doors or for some of us kicking our doors down, we do not do damage. Damage to the ones we get angry at and damage to our witness. But brothers and sisters, if the heart is not addressed, if we aren't repentant at the desire level, if the root is not removed, if the sin is not mortified, and our anger is sin long before we kick the dog, because kicking a cat would be righteous anger, or spew out a hurtful word, then we'll always be putting fires out. We'll always be doing damage control for the rest of our lives. Our irritability, our frustration, our anger, Paul tells us, is part of the old man. It's part of the flesh. So we must be learning Christ. We must be loving Christ so that we might be looking like Christ. Christ did not die for us to be sinful in our anger. He died so that we might be righteous and holy. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed once again at the sufficiency of your word. So Lord, we pray that we would use it in the fight against our own sin, our own emotions, our own anger. And Lord, through it, we would see who you have revealed yourself to be in truth. And that as we grow in knowing you, that we might behold, we might delight in you. That through the power of your spirit, you might change our desires that we might love what you love, hate what you hate. And Lord, that we might look like you. Lord, we are grateful. You may not have died so that we would be angry, but your death does cover it. And we find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. And we find hope in our battle to please you with everything in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.